Welcome to Defining Our Roots, Asian Americans in Higher Education podcast series. In this podcast series, we want to shine a light on the often invisible life stories of Asian Americans as they navigate their personal and professional paths at colleges and universities across the country. We do so in this moment of reckoning as we await to hear the Supreme Court's decision on the use of affirmative action policies and practices in our colleges and universities, and even as we continue to battle against anti-Asian hate incidents across the U.S. This podcast series is being sponsored by the LCLO Group, a higher education and workforce of the future consulting firm. I'm Dr. Lisa Cariagalo, and I serve as the CEO and founder of the LCLO Group. The first episode of this podcast explores how current Asian American faculty and students and scholars are actively mobilizing and giving voice to their past and current struggles and articulating what it is truly at stake for Asian America today. Our host and lead facilitator in this episode is Dr. Jennifer Nazareno, Assistant Professor at Brown University School of Public Health and Interim Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Innovation at Brown School of Professional Studies. Hi, everyone. Jen Nazareno. My research is focused on social structural determinants of health as it relates to immigrant populations, particularly Filipino healthcare workers, um, domestic care workers, as well as nurses. I teach qualitative research methods as well as intersectionality and social structural determinants of health courses. Um, I also teach an immigrant entrepreneurship course. So that is me. So I will turn to Catherine. Hello, I'm Catherine Siniza Choi. I'm a professor of ethnic studies at UC Berkeley. I'm the author most recently of the book, Asian American Histories of the United States, which just came out this year in August. Um, I'm also the author of the books, Empire of Care, Nursing and Migration in Filipino American History and Global Families, A History of Asian International Adoption in America. And I'm currently serving also as Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Belonging, and Justice here at UC Berkeley in their Division of Computing, Data Science, and Society. And uh, I'm pleased to be here. Thanks, Catherine. Joseph? Awesome. Hi, folks. My name is Joseph Tsuboy. I'm a recent graduate from UCLA's Asian American Studies master's program. My research looks at progressive Asian American organizing spaces, particularly here in Los Angeles. I think during the pandemic, a lot of community spaces have been thinking about community care and how folks have used tactics from the Asian American movement, from critical moments. So I've been really invested in grassroots organizing spaces down here. Um, I'll actually be lecturing at UCLA in the winter quarter, and I'm really excited to kind of start on this next um, teaching and research chapter. Thanks for having me here. Thanks, Joseph. Claire? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Claire Nakamura. I graduated from undergrad at UC Davis three years ago. Um, majored in history and psychology with a minor in Asian American studies. My undergrad thesis was in Asian American studies. I re-examined the history of Japanese American World War II incarceration through my grandfather's lens as Ikive Nisei under the theoretical framework of family separation. After graduation, I became an HR professional in the healthcare space at a very 
coincidental time right at the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I gained a lot of new perspectives, uh, one in the healthcare space at the height of anti-Asian violence and also gained a lot of new employment law perspectives and how I myself as an Asian American can support Asian American employees. So I'm excited to have everyone else on this call to participate in this conversation. So the first question I'd love to ask our our panelists is what is at stake for Asian Americans in higher education in the wake of the SFFA versus Harvard UNC Supreme Court cases. And I, I wanted to turn to Dr. Choi and her initial thoughts. Thank you, Jennifer. For me, there are two main things that are at stake um, with this landmark case. And the first is uh, the use of race as one factor in college and university admissions. And with that, the potential undermining of the importance of race in creating diverse college and university environments. And with that, there's the possibility of actually decreasing Asian American admissions if race and diversity are not taken into account. The second thing that is at stake for me in this case is the reinscribing of a binary divide that pits Asian Americans against African Americans and Latinos and how this overshadows a long history of solidarity and working together between these groups. Thank you, Dr. Choi. I wanted to turn to Joseph if he would wanna add to the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for your first answer, Dr. Choi. Um, Definitely agree, you know, what's at stake is over time, we'll see the tangible effects on campus, right? Maybe the loss of active student centers, student groups, you know, that excitement that maybe undergraduates or students on campus feel when they're around different um, people, you know, different experiences too. I remember um, stepping onto campus on the East Coast, coming from the Bay Area and, feeling excited by just the breadth and diversity in different cultural shows, different clubs, events, you know, events around food too. So I think quite literally what's at stake is the loss of different affinity groups, different student groups on campus. Yeah, I wanted to add on to that further. I think the university is a site of validation and a site of knowledge production. And if we were to lose affirmative action, we are losing the possibility of making a diverse group to produce knowledge Um, because students of color, we provide so many different perspectives on our cultural backgrounds and where we've been raised and how we conceive our history and not only history, but, you know, public health, other areas in our society that contribute to our general knowledge. That is something that's really what I think is at stake and really hope that students of color can really come together and support diversity across campuses. What I'd also just like to add, just being a former student at UCLA, it wasn't until I read Dr. Choi's work around Empire of Care did I really understand our history of nurses, Filipino nurses. And it's so important for 
us to really have this conversation because representation does matter in the research and the writing and the faculty, the students that can connect around the histories, the different histories that are, are taught at the university. Because we've had affirmative action policies that did really ensure that we had diverse students and faculty um, to teach and write and explore and talk about these issues and to center our lived experience and our stories. And so the next question that I want to pose to you all is, what challenges have you faced as an Asian American student or scholar in higher education and how did that experience affect the trajectory of the work or research you have accomplished? And so I want to turn to Claire, if you could share with us your experience as a student at UC Davis. You know, UC Davis has about 40% Asian American students. And something that Dr. Choi mentioned in her book was that we're so visible yet invisible. And I really did feel that because um, majoring in history, I didn't hear many narratives or research that really focused on Asian American experiences and U.S. history specifically. And it wasn't really until I started taking Asian American studies courses where I really gained a new perspective and lens to uh, view U.S. history through the critical frameworks that Asian American studies offers. And unfortunately, although there are a lot of Asian American students at UC Davis, I find that they're a bit complacent and take Asian American studies for granted. There's a sense that it's not as important because there are so many of us on campus, but at the same time, we're losing the importance of the struggles that um, the Asian American studies departments have created for us. Just to also add to the conversation, so I did my undergrad degree over at UCLA, and there was a Filipino-American experience class, which I was very happy to take it. But there was also the other group that was very focused on going to med school. They didn't have time to take the Asian-American studies courses, or that, I mean, to be quite honest, other Filipinos that just didn't think they needed to be part of Samahang Filipino or take Filipino-American experience class. And I was kind of in the middle of it, because I didn't really grow up around a lot of Filipinos. I was born in New Jersey, came to California when I was in elementary, junior high. And there was always this running theme in the back of my mind when I was at UCLA, am I Filipino enough? Because I, I straddled. I did Samahang Filipino, I did SPEAR, which is like peer advising for other Filipinos that were at the university. And I became a SPEAR advisor. I did PCN, which is Filipino Cultural Night. But then I had my other Filipino friends that they didn't need to, they didn't need to do Filipino graduation, but I wanted to, I wanted to, because I, I didn't see this in high school or junior high. And so to your point, Claire, just maybe the complacency we took for granted that they offered these kind of courses at UCLA. We didn't know the history of how hard fought it was to get these courses, this department at UCLA to get the faculty to teach. So, I mean, I know that we see ethnic studies that's growing in other you know universities, but still, those are being threatened too. Joseph, did you want to add more about your experience as well? Yeah, for sure. So I did my undergraduate at Tufts University outside of Boston. And it wasn't until 2012 that Tufts launched its Asian American Studies minor. Its Asian American center wasn't founded until 1983 following a racist hate crime actually on campus. So I think I'm just uplifting a little bit of the historic gap between 
um, you know, the Third World Liberation Front happening in the late 60s, and this continued fight schools are still facing. Thanks, Joseph. Catherine, would you want to weigh in as well as your experiences as a student as well as a faculty and scholar? I had so many similar experiences um, as a college student, which was a while ago. Um, I did my um, undergraduate work at Pomona College, a small liberal arts college in um, Claremont, California in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And what I remember from that experience was that even though I received a terrific education on one level, there were so many gaps in terms of my education because the Claremont Colleges, of which Pomona College is a part, didn't have Asian American studies then as it does now. And so there were a number of faculty, but also a lot of students who we took it upon ourselves to be there for one another, mentor one another. And there were faculty of color who specialized in African history and Mexican-American history who became my mentors. And even though they didn't have expertise in in Asian-American studies and Filipino-American history, which was something I was very interested in, they at least made me feel, and I'm very grateful for this, that this was legitimate scholarly work. And I've tried to, in, in my career after graduating from Pomona College, address some of those gaps with my own historical work. So what Claire has been saying about um, what's at stake with this Supreme Court case and issues of diversity, but specifically how diversity contributes to knowledge production and um, our understanding of our histories really, really resonates with me and and my own experience. I'm so pleased that there's now um, an intercollegiate department of Asian American studies at the Claremont Colleges, and there's now more institutionalized uh, mentorship programs. But these are things that we absolutely should not be taking for granted. I want to ask this next question around, tell us about a time either as a student or a professor where you felt your struggles and your achievements in higher education as an Asian American were overshadowed by the model minority myth. And so I wanted to maybe turn to you, Joseph. Yeah, thanks for this question. I think um, it's a big one too. And first, I just want to maybe think about what the model minority myth is and how maybe it affects one sense of self too. I think I remember coming onto campus and and seeing folks pick up um, maybe the most popular like STEM tracks, uh, maybe international relations or computer science too, and feeling my own worthiness on this new, right, like collegiate campus being questioned too. Well, I really appreciate how Joseph brought up what first, like what is the model minority? And that is something that so many Asian Americans have dealt with. And I do think it's an important question to ask because on one level, some people will define um, 
the st model minority is a kind of a stereotype that um, Asian Americans are smart, you know, especially in the STEM fields, that the stereotype that we are all um, successful in terms of um, uh, education and, and socioeconomically successful. And some people might think, and maybe even some Asian Americans themselves, like, what's wrong with that? Isn't that the best kind of branding any group could want? And the problem with this, which is what I hear when I'm um, listening to Joseph's response, is that it's flat. It's one-dimensional. It's about being seen before people really get to know us as human beings and all the complexity um, that goes along with that. So that's why the, the model minority myth is damaging. It's flat. A lot of it's just not true. We don't all have some innate ability in STEM fields. We, we are not all socioeconomically successful. And I mean, in fact, the Pew Research Center has pointed out how um, since the late 20th century into um, the early 21st century, that the, the incredible socioeconomic gap um, among Asian Americans at the higher end and lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum is actually quite noteworthy. It is the largest gap um, among all racial groups. And many of us may not know that precisely because of the stereotype of, of the model minority. In terms of just my own personal experience, I think what I'll share is that with that kind of um, stereotype comes certain assumptions that Asian Americans don't need help, especially in um, educational institutions. And this is where, when I was a student um, at, at Pomona College, when we wanted to have um, a student mentorship program, we, we had to really build that ourselves and that those resources weren't there in part because of this assumption. Why would they need that? And for me, that mentorship program um, meant that we mattered, that we as students, but also like um, current generations of students, but also future generation uh, generations of Asian American students, you know, matter to this college, to this campus. And we need to listen to their experiences um, and their concerns and, and provide the resources that they feel that they need. Thanks, Catherine. I mean, it, what you just said about how damaging it can be when we there's this model minority myth. You know, I come from a background where a lot of my family members are healthcare professionals. Hence, I do research around healthcare professionals. And there was just an expectation that I too would be a physician or a nurse or what have you. And so it was just this performative part of me that was like telling my family that, yeah, I'm looking into it. I'm looking into like medical school, I'm looking at, even, but then at UCLA, gravitating to education studies, education courses, American studies courses, sociology, psych courses. It was just, it was a really, this internal tension that I battled. And thankfully, thankfully, I knew Dr. Choi's work, but I didn't know you, Dr. Choi. And I would look you up and be like, okay, well, she got a PhD. Maybe I need to get a PhD. Maybe that's the path. Maybe I can do this, right? And so 
that was helpful. And at Brown, when I was, and, and Lisa was the vice president of academic affairs for a whole university, it was like, oh my God, Lisa, Lisa, like she has this amazing position. I'm going to go talk to her. How did she do this? Right? Because there is this minority myth. The pathway for alternative career paths is just not so clear all the time, right? And so it's so important, again, for us to really break down this model minority myth and really call it for what it is, that it's very damaging. We all don't subscribe to it. And it, it does have some real ramifications for many Asian American students. And so I want to turn to Claire. How, could you share your thoughts and, and, and your experiences as well? Yeah, thanks, um, Jen, for sharing that. I wanted to kind of add on to that experience because when I was in undergrad, it's really in Asian American studies that provided me the frameworks to understand the history of where the model minority myth came from and how I myself have internalized it and how other Asian Americans have internalized the model minority myth and those tensions of trying to battle those tropes. Let's continue to build on um, this very rich conversation. And I do want to turn to your book, Catherine, your third chapter. At the end, you write, a root cause is the phenomenon of not knowing Asian American history, longstanding tragedy, of anti-Asian scapegoating and Asian American contributions to US culture, economy, and government. How can we begin to change what we don't know? How can we affirm Asian Americans as human beings if we don't even know their names? And so with that very powerful paragraph, why do you think it is important to document and share our Asian American stories, especially in higher education, in the wake of anti-Asian hate and violence, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and now the Supreme Court contesting affirmative action. Well, knowledge of Asian American histories and just a fuller understanding of the um, American experience is so important for having a wellspring of empathy. As you noted, in the end of that chapter, I wrote, we cannot change what we don't know. And I think we have been experiencing this in a very tragic way since 2020 with the surge in uh, coronavirus-related anti-Asian hate and violence. For many students of Asian American history know that this is not new that there is a longer history of racial and medical scapegoating of Asian and Asian American bodies as disease carriers. And we know from these historical lessons that targeting these groups with hate, harassment, and violence is not going to cure any disease. It is not going to cure any pandemic. And yet here we are in our present day, realizing that this is a lesson that um, we still need to learn in the United States. I believe that had we known about these histories, we would not be bearing witness and experiencing what we are experiencing today. So there is a sense of personal, but also community and institutional urgency to get Asian American studies and Asian American history 
into our schools. This is a history that is almost 200 years old. And we should have been doing this earlier, but we have to do it. We have to do it now for the well-being of our future. Thank you, Catherine. Claire, I'd love for you to jump in and share your thoughts as well. In the wake of anti-Asian hate and violence and the Supreme Court contesting affirmative action and also the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I think the right to control our personal narratives and our bodies are potentially being stripped away at this point in time. You know, there's another side of the Supreme Court cases of conservative Asian Americans who want to remove affirmative action. And I think, you know, we need to help them understand and also for ourselves to really understand where they're coming from and why they feel that way. But if the SFFA is using Asian Americans as like, you know, a general group saying that we're being racially discriminated against. I mean, in many ways, like our experiences do not align with that narrative. So it's really important to share those different personal lived experiences, just so that others can feel that they are validated and to also ensure that We are not a monolithic group. Um, We're a very fluid group with multiple histories, as Dr. Choi's book mentions. And it's just really important to make sure that we're not erased in those ways. Thanks, Claire. Joseph, I just wondered if you had any thoughts around that. So storytelling, right? I think this concept of storytelling goes back. I'm, I'm, you know, thinking about generations. I'm thinking about Indigenous studies, too. Storytelling can be an act of liberation. And I'll say it again. I think storytelling can be an act of liberation. I remember doing my undergraduate thesis and sitting in the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley, and I found my late grandfather's um, handwritten letters to former ACLU attorney Wayne Collins because he, my grandfather, was a renunciant, someone who renounced his U.S. citizenship at the end of World War II and fought for 12 years to restore that citizenship. Confused, you know, so much confusion in these letters too. And I think it was through these physical letters that I learned about my grandfather's story, someone I hadn't met growing up. And it was that activation that I think continued and continues to this day my my passion to document stories through archival retrieval, through oral history interviews. And when thinking about this question about anti-Asian hate and violence, we must connect current acts of violence to systemic, historic acts of violence in this country too. I think our Our very presence as Asians in this country is predicated on the forced labor of Chinese migrants on the railroads, of Asian folks to replace um, enslaved labor in plantations too. So, you know, this history of racial scapegoating goes back. I'm thinking about the LA Chinese massacre um, in 1871 to Vincent Chin, um, to the sexualization and criminalization of, you know, Asian femme bodies too. So... I think when we're thinking about contemporary anti-Asian hate and violence, we also have to think about the legacies of these traumas and these tropes. And, you know, I think conversely, I'm also thinking about the ways that storytelling serves to remind us of our collective 
organizing efforts. I think when we're telling these stories about anti-Asian hate and violence, we're also needing to tell about the ways that our generations and ancestors protested the model minority myth and gathered with Black, Latinx, Indigenous communities during these really critical moments of our country's history to demand education, demand social services to better our communities. I'm sitting here with a moment of wanting to hold these stories of violence, but also to be hopeful for the ways that we've actually been telling these stories and fighting for so many decades. So I know that, you know, in the wake of these court hearings, there might be a feeling of, of sadness, of not knowing what to do. But I think there's actually ways we can turn back to these stories to give our, our friends, families, communities some hope too. Thanks so much, Joseph. And I, I want to follow up on that notion of hope. How do we walk away from these conversations feeling a sense of a call to action? How do we talk about the lessons we've learned in our respective careers in, our, in graduate and undergraduate school, but also just what can we take away from today? Well, in my book, Asian American Histories of the United States, I acknowledge with a great deal of humility that Asian Americans are not a monolith, that we are an incredibly diverse, heterogeneous group. And yet there are themes and experiences that continue to bring us together. And among these themes are violence, erasure, and resistance. And when we think of the theme of resistance, we might have a particular image in mind. Everyone, you know, might have a, a slightly different one, but I think pu public protest might be one. But in documenting these Asian American histories, one of the things I'm struck by is that there are so many strategies of resisting our erasure and the violence that has been um, perpetrated against us for over a century. And sometimes this resistance comes in the form of the arts, which I think are so integral to our healing, whether it's writing poetry, the Chinese detainees in the early 20th century in Angel Island Immigration Station, whether it's carving poetry in the barrack walls to point out the injustice of their immigration detention, or whether it's about the Asian American women who during World War II served as Rosie the Riveters, which is often racialized as a, a white woman wearing a denim shirt and a red bandana, but there were Asian American Rosie the Riveters. And that worked for a number of Asian American women. It was the first time they were able to work outside of the home and outside of ethnic enclaves. And how meaningful that was for them to expand their sense of community and also gain this feeling of belonging. Resistance is also about the Filipino-American nurses who have sacrificed so much during this pandemic and um, epidemics um, for the past six decades and who have organized themselves and created things like very recently a Heal Our Nurses campaign, which is trying to emphasize that we need to also care for our caregivers in the United States. For Filipino nurses who are caregivers, but really for all nurses and, and all caregivers. 
And for me, documenting and learning about all these different ways, all these different modes of resistance and strategies give me hope. I love that. And, and thank you for bringing up the tireless work of Filipino nurses and the domestic care workers during the time of COVID. Many have lost their lives. And I think because of your work and you know other Asian American scholars' work, without the, the historical documentation of how this disproportionate number of Filipino nurses in the United States coming as early as in early 1900s, if we didn't have that history, if we did not read that and know that and trace that and now bring it to what was happening during the COVID-19 pandemic, it was, you know, it, we just needed that knowledge, that context, that history to just really illuminate the sacrifices as well as the contributions to the healthcare industry in this country. So thank you. And, and so I do want to turn to Claire. I mean, let's talk a little bit more about resistance and, and your thoughts on that. You know, one thing that I've really appreciated from Asian American history and Asian American studies specifically is that it helped me become a critical reader and thinker. And with those frameworks, I can then, you know, extrapolate from my own personal family history of how they were unjustly incarcerated during World War II to now seeing communities organizing in response to that, but also the ongoing um, struggle of organizing against discrimination, how we can use that history of community organizing to also collaborate with other cross-racial groups um, and organize with them and find a common ground in these histories of racism so that we're not adopting a form of identity politics where we're thinking about our politics based on our identities, but rather think about our identities based on politics. Thanks, Claire. I'd love to hear, Joseph, some of your your thoughts too. Wow, this history of, I think, cross-community solidarity is something that gives me hope too. Um, You know, I've spent almost the past three years doing some field research and some independent research with a group in Los Angeles called Vigilant Love that was founded after the 2015 San Bernardino shooting here in Southern California. And during a rise of hate speech of Islamophobia entering the 2016 election. So there is this critical moment in which we were seeing Muslim, Arab, and even South um, Asian Americans being targeted and scapegoated ahead of the 2016 election. And it was um, this space called Vigilant Love, hosting vigils, gathering um, Japanese American and other Asian American activists that were called upon using histories from the redress and reparations era and previous Asian American movement organizing to say, we've done this before and we're gonna hold this space for these communities today that are being targeted. Um, Vigilant Love was one of the groups that was actually at LAX during you know, these threats of um, the Muslim ban, actually holding up signs saying, we're here, we're here with you when folks were being persecuted and, and being flown across the country too. So this name, Vigilant Love, kind of throws this kind of concept of fear, of vigilantism, of you know, being fearful of your neighbors, of people in your communities and saying, what if we actually use this concept of love, of care, of 
getting to know each other through dialogue, through storytelling, through, you know, cross-community organizing efforts, through art as a means for the future. What if this operating concept of love, of care, of community care, were actually at the center of what we're doing? lovely. Thank you, Joseph, for that. I, I think this is a wonderful way to end our podcast for today and really highlight and center this notion of vigilant love intersecting with empathy and with community organizing and resistance and art and and this, this, this storytelling, the power of storytelling. And I hope that listeners that hear our stories can connect and hopefully it will ignite more conversations, very important conversations around this very topic. And so I want to thank my panelists, co-panelists, Joseph and Dr. Choi, Catherine and Claire for your, for just your time and, and for your, for just being vulnerable, for sharing 